Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. That's on page 1015 in the chair Bibles. We're going to talk this morning about this issue of biblical manhood. Um, we're going to take a break for a couple weeks from the Gospel of Mark, and uh, I'm going to preach this morning on biblical manhood, and next week Jim is going to preach on uh, the topic of biblical womanhood. But we're both going to kind of be preaching on the same passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of 1 Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think this morning about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, um, God, I pray that we, we would not buy into the lies of our culture. God, we have probably so much, we don't even realize it. Father, your design for men and women, your design for marriage seems in our day to be just remote, outdated, archaic. But God, I pray that this morning you would call us back to that true design. That we would let your word speak on its own. God, that we would not try to, to interpret it based on modern pop psychology or um, the, the lies that are filling women's studies, classes, all across the country. This desire to, to push men out of the picture. But God, I also pray that you would raise up men of God in this room. Father, it's been far too long We've, we've, went, we've gone far too long without men in the church. So God, I pray that you would raise up godly men who fear you, who love their wives, and who are leaders and protectors and providers. Father, speak to us this morning, and I pray that all of this would come um, as we understand the gospel more. Lord, these issues are not separate from the gospel, so I pray that the gospel would be made just, just renewed and richer in our hearts this morning. We would be transformed by that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, just quick context 
First Peter, he starts his letter basically just extolling God, praising God, blessing God for all of the spiritual blessings that they have in Christ. He says, you are elect exiles, but you have been chosen, right? Uh, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Then he goes on, he says, you're a living stone, a holy people, uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then look over in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's going to give them specific instructions now on how to keep their conduct pure among the Gentiles. Verse 13, be subject to governing authorities, right? Verse 18, servants be subject to your masters. So government, government authorities, slaves and masters, and then he moves into husbands and wives and then children. But, before we get into our passage this morning, we have to ask the question, why are we talking about biblical manhood? Why is this an issue, right? This, may, this might seem like it's coming out of left field for some of you. I mean, we've been spending all this time in Mark, we've been doing kind of this why do we series, kind of interjected, like why do we take the Lord's Supper, why do we baptize, why do we do this, why, why do we do that, and all of a sudden, bam, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, why is this an issue? It's a huge issue. The first reason why I think it's time for us to preach on biblical manhood and why this is, why this is happening is there is mass confusion about what it means to be men and women in our culture. There's mass confusion in our culture about what it means to be men and women. When it comes to how men and women are to live their lives and relate to one another, we are fed lie after lie by our world. Just think for a minute. Let's just talk about men. When you think about what the culture tells us men are supposed to be like, what do we get told? What do we get fed by our culture? The air is usually on one side or the other. When you think of men, there's a harsh extreme, and then there's a passive extreme. What do I mean by that? The harsh extreme tells men... You gotta drive a Harley. You gotta be into NASCAR, sports, hunting, grunting, killing, seeing, seeking your own praise above the praise of others. This is what it means to be men, right? This is kind of the sort of machismo, um, Tim the Toolman Taylor kind of man, right? That, that we're fed. You have to sort of grunt and be smelly, and because this is what it means to be men, right? Just kind of. Man up and, and do really manly things like sports and hunt. But there's a whole mentality behind that. It's this idea of seeking yourself before others. That you are in charge. You are the ruler. You are the dominator, right? Everything in your life is to be used for your own personal benefit, including your relationships and the people in your life. You do not consider the well-being of others as long as you're taking care of yourself. That's kind of the harsh extreme that we are fed in our culture. 
But I fear that most of us fall on the other side. Because we're here, we're Christians, perhaps. And so we know we're supposed to be nice. And so we, as men, fall into the passive extreme. The passive extreme tells us that we have to be nice. We have to be open-minded, well-dressed, well-versed, free from all constraints and commitments, free to pursue leisure and fun whenever we want with no regrets. Um, we're, we're told to, we're kind of encouraged to put off growing up because once you marry and have children, the fun is over, right? And besides, we still want to be Toys R Us kids. Right? So we fill our lives, instead of taking charge and, and, and seeking a wife and seeking a future, we, we kind of just live our lives passively. We let things come to us rather than going out and seeking life for ourselves. We fill our lives with entertainment, movies, video games, TV, casual dating relationships, shallow Christian community. And the prospect of marriage and family seems so far down the road to us that to even consider it at this point seems laughable, right? You have a hard time committing to a church because it just might interfere with the things you really want to do, like hang out with your friends who are just like you, or go to sporting events, or sleep in. Or even a more worthy pursuit, focus all of your time and energy on homework and studying. <clears throat> now, I expected there to be more um, kind of college-aged men here this morning. But I know you're here. Um, I think the, the, the major groups are, are missing here. But I fear that most of us... Um, in our culture, we, we, we make an idol out of college, our college experience, don't we? We, we really believe that, that, okay, I'm out of high school, I'm free, next step is marriage, but now, in this in-between time, in college, I'm going to live it up, right? This is a once, well, like, what are we told? Once-in-a-lifetime experience. Get out of the house, party it up, live it up. Because once you're married, the fun is over, right? So what we have is this thing called delayed adolescence, where we have young men who are supposed to be men coming out of high school, going to college, and just delaying that high school experience rather than taking control of their lives and living for what God has called them to live. They're just coasting, right? Coasting through college. Commitment, covenant, all of these ideas about marriage and family seem so far removed from them that they're just delaying what they've experienced in high school. Because you see, we're, many of us, are, we fall into this passive extreme. We're just, we're just passive. We're just passive men. We're apathetic about our futures. But what about women? I'm not going to preach specifically to women this morning. Um, Jim's going to do that next, next week. But let's, let's think for a moment about the lies that the culture tells women. 
There's the harsh extreme. This is the feminist outlook. Feminist outlook tells women to take charge of your own life. Reject anything that might look like traditional family values or oppression or submission. Push yourself to outdo everyone else in every area of your life. Seek your own praise. Plan your life out so that you can take care of yourself. Be dependent upon no one. That's the harsh extreme. But then there's also a passive extreme when it comes to women as well. Passive extreme. We're not really... It's not really preached in our culture, but it is... an abuse and a twisting of God's design. It says that you're a doormat. You let others take advantage of you sexually, emotionally, and relationally. You follow others into sin because you fear rejection more than you fear the judgment of God. So you see you have men and women and we tend to fall on one side of this fence. If you're a man, you kind of maybe fall into the harsh extreme or maybe the passive extreme. If you're a woman, there's a harsh extreme, the feminist outlook. And then there's a passive extreme, the doormat. So we see that there is mass confusion in our culture about what it means to be men and women. The second reason why we're talking about biblical manhood and why it's important is there is confusion about what the Bible teaches on these subjects. We could talk for a long time about this. Uh, Many of the passages that directly address how men and women are to relate to one another seem archaic and extremely outdated. Right? Surely we have to find a way to reinterpret these passages in order for them to make sense in our own modern context, right? Surely they don't mean what they actually say. 1 Corinthians 7, 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. That seems, that seems pretty old-fashioned, right? 1 Corinthians eleven nine. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What does that mean? (laughs) Right? 1 Corinthians 14.34 The women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now that, that just seems downright, like, misogynistic, right? Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.31, therefore a man should leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What, like what is the biblical teaching about men and women? There's just confusion all over the church. I mean it's not even on the radar of the secular world, right? I mean these passages... They're just automatically chucked out the window by the unbelieving culture. But even within the church that claims to believe the Bible, there's confusion on what these passages teach. I just want to take a minute and just... We're not going to go through all those passages today. I mean, it would take a long time. In fact, um, this is a really thick book, and it's extremely helpful in thinking through these issues. If you are at all interested in this topic of biblical manhood and womanhood, which I I think you should be if you're a man or a woman, um, then 
this book is just immensely helpful. I mean, I cannot uh, like emphasize this enough. This is absolute necessity. Uh, it takes all those passages we, ju- we just read, explains them, um, in, just in very helpful ways. Um, it, you can get it for free, by the way, on Piper's website, uh, DesiringGod.org. In PDF form, is free. So this is also a very helpful book. It's three bucks on uh, Amazon. Super, super helpful when it comes to man, biblical manhood. Just want to hold those things up. Feel free to come look at those later. Um, there's all kinds of resources out there to help with how we deal with these passages, right? We don't have to chuck them out the window. We don't have to reinterpret them. They meant, they mean what they say, right? God didn't make a mistake when he inspired these texts. So we have an obligation to understand them. The third reason why this issue is important, biblical manhood and womanhood, is because God did not create androgynous human beings. Right? God didn't make us male and female. He made us male or female. Right? God makes men and he makes women. And there's a specific purpose for each of those. Even when you go back to the creation account, you see God lays out the original purpose, right? So God creates man and he creates woman. He created them with specific purposes in mind. He gave them different tasks and roles and we are not free to manipulate God's plan for our existence. No matter what the unbelieving culture tells us. The fourth reason why this issue is important is because the truth of the gospel is at stake. This seems like a, an unnecessarily extreme statement, but it's absolutely true. Because the, in, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, the connection between the relationship of a man and a woman is directly connected to the gospel. Ephesians 5 tells us that the relationship between a man and a woman within the context of marriage is designed and planned by God to picture Christ's relationship with his people. If we fail to understand how men and women are to relate to one another, we will inevitably be putting a false gospel on display for the world to see. If you don't know how to love your wife, biblically, in a godly way, then the message you are sending to the world is a false message. Because marriage, this, this is not some kind of afterthought. It's not like Paul was sort of searching for like, oh, okay, uh, Christ in the church, I need sort of like an analogy to go along. Oh, it's kind of like marriage, right? It's kind of like marriage. That's not the point. The point is that God created marriage to specifically point to the relationship of God with his people. That's the intention of marriage. It's huge. It's all over the scriptures. And when you get that wrong, when you don't understand that, then you will put your marriage on display for the world to see, and they will, you will be putting on display a false gospel. So the truth of the gospel is at stake. So there's at least four reasons why this issue is important. There's mass confusion about what it means to be men and women. There's confusion about what the Bible teaches. Uh, God did not create us as androgynous beings. He created us male and female. And because the truth of the gospel is at stake. 
So let's look at 1 Peter 3.7. We're just going to look at one verse specifically this morning. Let's read it again, 1 Peter 3.7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's four things I want to talk about from this passage. They're right there in the text. They're separated by commas. It's really easy. Um, First, there is a command. The command, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. The second thing, the manner. The manner that we are to, to carry out this command, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Then there's the basis for the command, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, And then Peter ends with a warning, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Four points, really easy. We're just going to go right down through and talk about what Peter's getting at. Number one, the command. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does Peter mean when he says, understanding way? The Net Bible translates this as treat your wives with consideration. The NIV says be considerate as you live with your wives. The word here that's translated understanding way is actually like literally means knowledge. Live with your wives in knowledge. So what does it mean to live with someone in knowledge? It means you have to know them, right? You have to know your wife. And you're like, of course you do. You wouldn't be married if you didn't know your wife. But there's more than that, right? When the Bible uses the word know, it doesn't just mean be aware of them. It's know them intimately. Husbands must know their wives. All of these words imply that the husband will have an intimate knowledge of his wife. In order to be considerate to someone else, you have to understand that person's character. So there's a deep, rich knowledge that must exist between a husband and a wife. The husband must be aware of his wife's likes and dislikes, her character traits, the things that she uh, is, is good at, her strengths, her weaknesses, her limitations. So we see that to live with your wife in knowledge requires a lot of work, a lot of time. A lot of talking, right? Communicating. But that's not all. When you talk about living together in knowledge, there's another knowledge that must be happening other than the knowledge between the husband and the wife. Husbands must know God's will for marriage as well. So it's not just about husbands knowing your wives. You have to know God's will for your marriage. There's a lot of unbelievers who have great marriages because they know one another, but they're not Christ-centered marriages because they don't know God's purpose and intention for that marriage. So not only will the husband know his wife in an intimate way, he will also know God's purposes and principles for marriage. To know one's spouse is just the beginning, but to know what God says about marriage and how to live together in peace and unity is something entirely different. So let's think about this, married men. Do you know your wife? Have you become lazy or apathetic in getting to know your wife? 
Do the conversations just not seem to flow like they did when you were younger? Or have you become lazy in seeking out God's purposes and intentions for your marriage? Has it been a while since you've read Genesis 1 and 2 and saw God's original intention for man and woman? Married men are prone to not consider their wives. This can look all kinds of ways. Many husbands, even after marriage, try to continue to live the life they lived before they were married. So we kind of think that, that, all, that all the work is in the hunt, right? You kind of you put all your effort into the hunt, and once you get her, put that ring on, get married, bam, it's done. You just kind of coast, right? Coast. And you can just kind of live, keep living the same life you lived before you were married because you got, you got her, right? Everything's done. All the work is done. It's not the case. The work is just beginning. There's a lifetime of knowledge that you have to seek. There's a lifetime of living together and growing together. What about those who are unmarried? It's, I know it's kind of easy to hear sermons like this on marriage and family and just kind of just kind of cash out, right? If you're not married, it's like, all right, kind of thinking about football now or, or whatever. But there are huge implications for you if you're not married. Think about this. Think about all of the marriages that fail. And then think the reason why a lot of husbands have a hard time giving up their bachelor lifestyle is because of just that. It's become a lifestyle. Some men, possibly even here, some of you are living your lives for yourselves. You've been living your lives for yourselves for so long that even the thought of giving up your own pursuits for the sake of someone else seems like a remote possibility at best. You spend your time and money on trivial, frivolous things like video games and movies and gadgets. You spend hours watching sports, hanging out with your friends, talking about sports, even daydreaming about the sports you thought you were good at in high school. (laughs) And some of you are so addicted to that kind of lifestyle that if and when you ever find a woman who might consider marrying you, you will try to bring all of those activities into your marriage. And it will be destroyed. Because you are living a lifestyle for yourself. It's become a lifestyle. You're addicted to yourself. And when it comes time for marriage, it's going to take a miracle of God to rid your life of all of that stuff that you've accumulated. Because when God calls you to a woman, that has to go, right? I mean, it's, you, can't, you can't have one foot in the bachelor pad and one foot in the home. And if you do, like a lot of men do, the marriage will fail or you'll be miserable. So there are huge implications here. Some of you, some of you haven't even given any thought on how to know women 
how to pursue a wife because you're so consumed with your own pursuits. So, what does it look like to live with your wife in an understanding way? We go into the next part of the verse. By showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. What does it mean to show honor? Well, this could be translated, assign honor, impart honor, or grant honor. This very clearly shows that husbands are to actively seek to treat their wives better than they treat themselves. To assign honor to someone requires true humility and selflessness. You cannot truly honor someone else while at the same time seeking your own benefit. Some other ways of thinking about honor is to hold them up, to put them on display. So we see that that Peter is calling husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way by showing honor to them, by making them look good, by lowering themselves, decreasing their own wants, decreasing their own um, pursuits in order to pursue the things for her, the things that she wants. What does Peter mean by the term weaker vessel? Right? Doesn't that seem kind of like a kind of slap in the face, right? Yeah, give her what she wants. She's a weaker vessel anyway, right? Is that what Peter's saying? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is you gotta, you got to remember the context, right? Remember what Peter had, ju- had just said to women in the verses previous to this. Submit, right? Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So there's this, this idea that women are to submit, wives are to submit to their husbands. Now when that submission happens, the woman opens herself up. She becomes vulnerable, right? to all kinds of mistreatment and abuse, neglect. And if, like I said before, the husband tends to err on the harsh side, he will become domineering. He will rule over her harshly in an authoritarian kind of way, which can lead to verbal abuse, um, emotional abuse, and physical abuse, right? I think that's what Peter's getting at. He's saying, look, live with your wives in an understanding way. Honor her, lift her up, make her look good because she is the one, she is the weaker of the partners, right? She is the weaker vessel. She is the one submitting. So she is vulnerable. You take what is vulnerable and you lift it up. You make it look glorious. You make it look good. I think that's what Peter's getting at here. He's not saying that women are weaker in character or intellect, or abilities. He's certainly not saying they are weaker in their value before God. In fact, he's going to say the opposite of that in the very next part, right? He's probably addressing the physical strength that men have over their wives and is instructing them to guard against physical and verbal abuse.
And remember, men, where you fall. It's not always one or the other. It can be both at times. But typically, men tend to fall on one side of the fence here. You either can become domineering and harsh towards your wife. Or, when you fail to take leadership of your marriage. Remember, the wife is called to submit. What is she submitting to? Your leadership, right? She's submitting to your leadership. When you, when you fail to take, that, take on that leadership responsibility, you become passive. So you begin, begin to err on the other side of passivity, right? Or apathy. Some men do not assume their leadership role, and they become passive and apathetic towards leading their family. Most Christian men, at least that I know, struggle with laziness and apathy by nature and would rather veg out on the couch than take charge of the family. This means the wife usually has to step up and assume the leadership role in the family. This can eventually lead to neglect and abandonment by the husband. So we see we have this idea of considerate leadership, as it says up there, considerate Leadership is a picture of the gospel. What Peter is getting at here, when you have the weaker vessel being exalted, you have the the one in leadership lowering himself so that others might be benefited, so that those underneath him might be lifted up, that is a picture of the gospel. The fullest picture of this kind of leadership is found in Ephesians 5. If you want to turn over to Ephesians 5 with me. That'd be great. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25, says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who is leading the church? Even in this passage, Ephesians 5, the context, Christ, right? Christ is leading the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here you have a picture of Christ and the church, and this is meant to, marriage is meant to put that on display. And you have Christ as the leader, the head of the church. The entire book of Ephesians is about Christ ruling his church. He is the head of the church. But here, Paul says, that leadership, that, that ruling, it looks like service. Right? It's an emptying of yourself. It's, a, it's a, a refusal to indulge your own fleshly desires and wants. Putting yourself last and bringing others up. Serving others. Considerate leadership is a picture of the gospel. So married men, on which side of the fence do you tend to err? Have you been too harsh with your wife? Do you find yourself, maybe you grew up in church, and so you kind of know generally the, the biblical teaching of uh, that men are to lead, women are to submit. That's kind of all you know. And so that kind of, for you, 
in the day-to-day operations of your home, you take advantage of your wife. You don't serve her. She is expected to serve you, right? After all, you are the leader. Have you become too harsh with your wife? Or, like most of us probably, have you become too passive? Does this leadership that Peter is calling you to, does this sound like a lot of work? Does it sound like, man, this is going to just be crazy. I mean, I'm going to have to like get off the couch. I'm going to have to, like, when I come home from work, instead of just kind of sitting down and, and just relax, I'm going to have to like do things and talk to my wife and, and take charge of the children. Does that sound to you like a lot of work? Because it is. It's so much work. And so, if you're like me, when it comes to thinking about those kinds of things, it's a lot easier for me to just kind of cash out and be like, I don't want to think about it. Man, I just want to sit here. I just want to watch TV on Sundays. I want to watch football. I want to just kind of hang out and not have to worry about those things. And She's so much better anyway at dealing with the kids. She just does things so much faster, right? That's passive. You're being passive. You're becoming apathetic. You are not assuming the leadership role that God's called you to. What about those of you who are unmarried? Because these two sides of the fence show up whether you're married or you're not. How do you view women? Right? Are they pieces of meat? Do you view women in your life as pieces of meat to be used and discarded? You may not think so, but this manifests itself in things like pornography. The way that you think about women becomes a habit. Creates in you a, a, a desire to just use them for your own benefit. Or, on the other side... Do you find yourself cowering away from women and from relationships, afraid to pursue and waiting for them to kind of pursue you? That would be the passive side. You're failing to to take charge. You're failing to to exercise your your God-given responsibility to to raise a family and to, to, to be married, right? Now, side note, singleness. It's a separate issue, okay? God calls some people to singleness, okay? But the vast majority of people are called to be married. That's just the way God created it, and it's, it, is, um, it is the biblical expectation that you will be married unless God specifically calls you to singleness for the sake of kingdom service. There's all kinds of stuff about that. If you're thinking about that, I'm not called to be single, all this kind of stuff, right? We could talk later. Uh, tons of stuff out there about that. So, whether you're married or unmarried, these things show up. You're too harsh, uh, you're abusive in the way that you think about women, or you're too passive. Number three, the basis. You can probably go to the next slide if you want. Sorry. I kind of repeated them a little bit. Um, number three, the basis. So Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, 
So he gives us a reason. Why? Why should we treat our wives this way? Why should husbands treat their wives um, as though, like, why should they serve their wives? Why should they lower themselves and lift their wives up? Because their wives are heirs with them in the grace of life. This is the reason Peter gives. This word heirs, in the New Testament, it always refers to being a a recipient of the promises of God. So women are not second class citizens in the kingdom of God, are they? Right? So we have to be able to maintain this distinction, okay? Because there's a big push even in evangelical Christianity called egalitarianism, okay? It's a big word. Basically, they would argue against almost everything that I'm saying here today. They would say that men and women, by all accounts, whether it comes to your standing before God and role and function within marriage, are equal. So there is no submission, right, Men and women are, the women are not to submit to the leadership of men. They're not to submit to the leadership of men within the family or within the church. That women are, are free to exercise the same role and function within the family and within the church. And I'm saying that that's not the case. We, we have to maintain this distinction that before God, men and women are equal. They are equal in standing. They are equal in value before God, right? That's Peter's point. He says, look, they're submitting. They're making themselves vulnerable. Lift them up. Help them. Put them on display. Serve them because they're equal with you in the grace of life, in the promises of God, in God's election and His salvation, in their standing before the cross. You are equal. This word heirs is also used in Romans chapter 8. When Paul says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The wife, while subordinate to the husband in role and function within the family, is equal to him in her standing before God. Right? That's a distinction we have to maintain. And the distinction is borne out in the context of the passages. So look with me in Galatians 3, 25-29. This is the most common um, passage that egalitarians will use to argue against this uh, biblical teaching of submission. Galatians 3, Starting in verse 25. Galatians 3.25 says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. They would say, look, Caleb, there's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. All of these role distinctions and functions within marriage are done away with. 
Because Christ has come and he has made us all equal. But they're failing to, to make proper distinctions, right? Paul is not talking about the role within marriage here. He's talking about your standing before God. That's the whole purpose of the context. Of course we're equal. Of course our value in Christ is the same, right? We're all sinners. We've all been redeemed in the same way. Um, we are all equally inheritors of salvation and the grace of God, or as Peter says, the grace of life, right? But within the marriage family, there is a distinction between role and function, right? Purpose and intentionality. God has created us with specific purposes and intentions, okay? We can't just flatten it out and ignore all the other passages that give specific directions to men and women and husbands and wives. Some would say that it is impossible for us to maintain this distinction. They would say that since we say that wives are to submit to their husbands, we cannot also say they are equal to their husbands. But these people fail to see the distinction between the role of husbands and wives in marriage and the implications of the gospel for all people. So, married men, have you forgotten that your wife is a child of God? If you tend to fall on the harsh side, is it because you have forgotten that your wife is is an heir with you of the grace of life? Is it because you have failed to see her as God sees her, as clothed with the righteousness of Christ? And if you claim that for yourself, you've got to claim that for her. How dare we treat our wives with disrespect and a domineering attitude and harsh words, abusive words, when they are daughters of Christ, daughters of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have no basis for mistreating our wives. Her sins have been paid for just like yours. You have no ground for bitterness towards her. No matter how much you think she has failed as a wife, she stands before God as one whose sin has been removed and is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This has huge implications for those of us who are married. No matter what expectations you have for your wife that are left unmet, You have no basis to mistreat her. You have no ground to mistreat her because all of her failings and shortcomings as a wife, as a person, have been paid for in Christ. If that's true of you, men, it's true of your wives. We are called to love. We are called to serve. We are called to lift her up, to serve her, to make her look good, to put her on display, to praise her before others. If you're here and you're unmarried, how does this affect the way that you view women? Are you preparing for this? Or are you just wasting time? The last part of the verse in 1 Peter, we're looking at... 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And Peter ends by saying, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I took this kind of as a warning. It could also be a promise, right? Your prayers won't be hindered if you do this. But I kind of take it as, look, he kind of says it in, in the negative way. You do this, prayers aren't going to be hindered. But where is this coming from? Does this just seem like it's coming out of left field to you? It seems like it's coming out of left field to me. It's kind of like, okay, love your wives, show honor. I, I get that, I get that, I get the gospel implications there. And then bam, oh by the way, your prayers may not be hindered. Right? If you do this, your prayers won't be hindered. Where does prayer fit into this? Like all of a sudden you just have to throw prayer. Like my prayers are going to be hindered if I'm not living up to this. But if we just keep reading, verse 8, he explains it. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Okay? You may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes from Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I think what Peter is saying is, if you are not living in this way, if you are being harsh with your wife, if you are abusing her, or if on the other side of the fence, if you are not assuming your leadership role, you are living in sin, men. And whenever we live in sin, when our lives, the, the way that, that, that we live our lives from day to day, when that is not as God has designed it, God says there will be a, uh, an interruption, there will be a hindrance to his blessing. His blessing will not come to us, specifically when it comes to our praying. This is amazing to me. Because here we have Peter giving us some of the most practical instruction that we, that we find in this book. Right In this letter, this is kind of like, I mean, you can't get more practical than just day to day, live with your wives in an understanding way. Honor her. She's, heir, she's an heir with you of the grace of life. Right. This is kind of the mundane day to day things of our lives, living with our spouses. But then he has no problem just shooting up into the heavenly realm and saying, look, what you do day to day, the way you relate to your wife, Day after day after day will have a direct effect on your prayers. You can move the heart of God, but you don't love your wife rightly. That's crazy to me. I mean, that's just, I mean, I think of just being here at Redeemer Church and all of the things that we've been praying for for so Long, how many prayers of mine have been hindered because I haven't been li- loving my wife 
the way that I should? How many of my prayers have been hindered from my own family? Because God's just like, you're praying these things, Caleb, but you're not living with your wife in an understanding way. You've forgotten that she is an heir with you of the grace of life. You're not showing honor to her. This is just another just great example of how theology and how the, the implications of the gospel for our lives have eternal ramifications, right? Personal holiness, mortification of sin, uh, a seeking, a pursuit of others' well-being, all of that is very practical stuff, has huge implications in the eternal realm. Our prayers are hindered whenever we don't love our wives. Our prayers are hindered when we have developed a habit, a lifestyle of selfishness, of being harsh towards others, of, of not serving others. So, those of us who are married, this means that our effectiveness in prayer is directly affected by how we love our wives. In one sentence, Peter moves from the mundane, day-to-day experience of living with our spouses to the great spiritual heavenly realities. He says, if you want to move the heart of God in prayer, if you want God's blessing on this church, if you want God's blessing on your children, it starts in your home. If you fail to exercise leadership and provision and protection in the very like, most important part of your life that God has given you, then how could you ever expect to be blessed anywhere else? If we are failing at home, God says, your prayers will be hindered. Those of, us that are unmar- those of you that are unmarried, let this be a warning to you as well. Just because you don't currently have a wife does not mean your prayers will ascend to God unhindered. What sin are you enslaved to? How are you preparing for the responsibility of a wife and children? How do you think and talk about women, about the women God has placed in your life? Are you taking necessary steps right now to prepare yourself to take responsibility for the leadership, provision, and protection of your family. So we see that in this passage, Peter lays out for us, just in very clear ways, four things that we need if we're going to think rightly about how to relate, uh, for, for, for men to relate rightly to their wives. Live with them in an understanding way. You've got to know them. You've got to know who they are. You've got to know God's plan for marriage and principles for marriage. That takes time and effort and study and communication. And it takes forsaking the things of this world, the things that are, as bachelors, we kind of hold on to. 
showing honor to them as the weaker vessel. They are called to submit, which means they are submitting to your leadership. They are heirs with you in the grace of life. Don't forget that your wife, as a believer, is a child of God, just like you are. That even though there is a distinction within marriage of role and function, that your standing before God is the same. And lastly, this has eternal implications, right? That your prayers as a husband, your effectiveness in prayer as a husband is directly affected by how you treat your wife. So, going back to the gospel... How should this change the way we think about the gospel? What are we missing in our marriages? What are we missing, for those of you who aren't married, what are you missing in the gospel that is causing you to think wrongly about what it means to be a husband? Because we see in Ephesians 5 that Christ came... To give his life as a ransom for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we see that to understand marriage is to understand the gospel. If you're here and you're married and you are experiencing things in your marriage, perhaps um, perhaps there's sin involved. You're caught up in some kind of sin. Um, or, or maybe you've been treating your wife, mistreating her uh, too harshly or you're being too passive you become apathetic and lazy it's because you have failed to understand the gospel you've got to go back to the gospel and look at what Christ has done how he has co- came to the earth how he emptied himself how he gave his life as a ransom for the church if you're here and you're not married and you're thinking about this, and you're thinking, man, this guy is way off. Like, right? I'm not going to get married for like another four or five years at least, right? I mean, I'm in college now. I've got a lot of things going on that I've got to take care of before I get married. I would say you don't understand the gospel, right? If you are delaying adolescence, if you are just kind of living life for yourself and filling up your time and spending all of your money on things that you want 
your own entertainment. It's because you're living your life for yourself and you're not seeking to live your life for someone else. That's a failure to understand the gospel. That's a gospel issue. It's a hard issue. So, the question is, what is God calling you to do? If Christ came and emptied himself and gave himself up for his church, and marriage is meant to be a picture of that, how can you do that? It's going to mean something different for everybody. So how can you do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it just cuts just straight to the heart. Lord, these issues of marriage and family and authority and submission, um, they just have huge implications for us as we live our lives day to day. But also, God, we see that they have huge eternal implications as well. So I pray that, Lord, in this very room, you would raise up men who are concerned, men who are passionate about leadership, men who who will stop being passive and letting the world just come to them, Father, they would take charge, that they would assume their leadership role, that they would step up, and that you would prepare them, God, to lead families and to lead their wives and to to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And God, I pray for the women in this room. I pray that what they heard today would, would give them, if they're not married, God, would give them something a little more just solid to hold on to, to look for in a man. A future husband, perhaps. I pray that women would stop settling for passive, wimpy men. God, I pray for Redeemer Church that that you would just... I pray that we would be able to take this teaching and this understanding and just proclaim it to the world and live it out, God, so that others would see that this is God's design and true intention for men and women that we would be able to be a witness, a gospel witness in the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.